Welcome back to the Untold Civil War podcast. Something I've always wanted to cover are raids. Throughout history, there have been times when certain objectives simply could not be reached by artillery, the big guns of the Navy, or the Air Force. These objectives could only be reached by infiltrating a small group of men behind enemy lines. We saw this at St. Nazaire in World War II, Sante in Vietnam, and the Osama bin Laden compound raid during our global war on terror. But these actions also occurred during the Civil War. Today's objective will be the lifeline of the Confederacy, its railroad, and the Union leader of the raid is Potter. So lace up your brogans, sharpen your bayonet, and let's delve into some untold Civil War. The Untold Civil War podcast is back, and today we have Tom Elmore on to discuss Potter's Raid. Mr. Elmore has authored four books on Civil War topics and has lectured across the Mid-Atlantic states. It is a real treat to have you on the podcast, sir. Welcome. Thank you. It's kind of nice to be able to have a conversation with somebody, especially given um, the current situation facing the country and the rest of the world. Absolutely. And, you know, it's always great. It's always great to talk about Civil War topics, too. So and today we're talking about uh, your publication, Potter's Raid through South Carolina, the final days of the Confederacy. It is a natural follow up to your work chronicling Sherman's March through the Carolinas. Mm -hmm. And being that you've written so many books on Civil War topics, what brought you to Potter's Raid in South Carolina? Well, as said, the big book, Sherman's March through South Carolina. Carnival Destruction, Sherman's March Invasion of South Carolina, excuse me, I get the title right, was basically, you know, I grew up here in Columbia, and there are still many scars left from Sherman's visit to our city in February of 1865. In fact, um, just within the last decade, OSHA had to use Superfund money to clean a lot in downtown Columbia that had been a gas works that had been blown up by Sherman and had never been cleaned after over 150 years. So you see that, you go to the State House in Columbia, you see the stars on the side of the building from where Sherman's artillery bombarded the sit the building. There are ruins of a factory at the Columbia Zoo and Bridge out there too. So there's plenty of reminders around Columbia monuments and stuff. And you know, you really downtown Columbia, you can't throw a brick without hitting something, at least in my mind, that is somewhat Civil War related. On my first book, Columbia Civil War Landmarks, I listed 60 sites in the Greater Columbia area, and I could have easily added about another dozen. Just to add to that, you know, after reading your book on Potter's Raid, is it does almost read like a guide. I could physically pick this book up and read mm -hmm. it, and I felt like I could follow along mm -hmm. um, to all the sites. It was really easy to read like that. Well, also, too, I also got lucky in that the um, Sumter County Historical Society, um, Robert Brown, who got the first copy of the book. He's the one that actually asked me to write, and that's a story, interesting story in and of itself. But um, he gave me permission to reproduce their um, brochure that shows the, the um, route that the men took on the raid. And unlike Sherman's March, where basically you almost have a straight line, or two straight lines to be exact, Potter's is current, it's sort of like a drunken sailor, you know, weaving and weaving all over the place because they were in a cat and mouse chase. You know, with Potter and his men trying to find the railroad equipment, which the Confederates right. moving, you know, away from them until they finally ran out of places to move to, and and they captured it and in the raid, in the story. Right, and I mean, before we get too into the raid, could you give us a little background of what was happening during the Civil War that led to the 
raid taking place? Yeah, I, call, I often call this raid the son of Sherman, um, because when Sherman occupied Shiraz, South Carolina, right before he left South Carolina to enter um, North Carolina, on March 3rd, 1865, he ordered the cavalry raid on Florence because the second command, uh, Major General Albert Otis Howard, who also founded this uh, site, Howard University, you know, heard that there was some railroad equipment, rolling stock, and equipment in Florence, South Carolina, which is about an hour's drive away from Shiraz by modern-day car. So on the 4th, a detachment was led by Colonel Reuben Williams, um, and they weren't expecting anybody easing down. They thought it'd be a quick, easy, we'll get back in time for dinner type raid. Well, they get down to Florence and they discover that, no, they're at, well, first of all, the element of surprise was ruined because an engineer saw them coming, put the train in reverse, and hit it back to Florence and sound the alarm. Now, estimates of how many Confederates were there in Florence vary, but it's probably safe to say that at the very least, there was an equal number of Confederates there as there were Union troops. More likely, two or three times maybe the Union were outnumbered by the Confederates. So the raid was a complete flop. They basically, the Union troops literally had to run back to Florence, I mean, Gerard, excuse me, from Florence, you know, running for their dear life. And the mission was, you know, they got back on the 6th, and the mission was deemed a failure. Um, Howard was really, really upset about this. And if you know anything about Howard, he was one of the most pious generals of the entire war. He had been a Sunday school teacher at West Point. He had actually considered leaving the military to go into ministry. He actually even issued orders saying that the prohibiting the name of the Lord being taken in vain. You can imagine how well that was obeyed. Yeah, so he really was fumed about it, which was very much out of character for him. And even 40 years later, when he wrote his memoirs, he was still complaining about this. Well, Sherman at first was pretty nonchalant about this. He said, you know, told um, his chief of cavalry, um, Justin Kilpatrick, you know, not to, there's rebel equipment, Florence, don't worry about it. It's not worth going after. And if you know anything about the history of Sherman, you know, as an independent commander, cavalry raids were not his friend. Just about every cavalry raid he ever authorized, initiate, ended in failure. So that was, so anyway, so that was it. Then two weeks later, he's in Fayetteville. He sends a letter to um, the Union commanders in Charleston, Quincy Gilmore, and says, you know, I want these trains in Florence stopped, destroyed, whatever means. And, you know, I'm paraphrasing his uh, dispatch. And it's really, it's, it reads almost like the ravens of a mat mat. Uh, he says, you know, I don't care if you have to, if, Burn, burn the garrisons of Savannah, Charleston, or Wilmington to free up the troops. I don't care about those seas. All I want is those trains, which I'm sure made the Union com Navy commanders go like, what the beep? Yeah. And so that really was it. Um, you know, I, I think Howard probably put a bug in Sherman's head here. Sherman was OCD by today's standards, in my opinion. Um, he had no filters. I mean, he would speak you know, whatever he felt off his mind, didn't care what anybody thought. You know, someone was, someone with, who, with some training would tell me that he was autistic. I would not dispute that. Um, a, a psychiatrist would have had a field day with Sherman. I, yeah. From what you're saying, you know, I almost picture it like one of these, uh, you know, modern special mission type action movies where they bring in, you know, the, the commander and tell him, you know, we need you to go on this mission. Oh, what happened to the last guys who went there? Oh, a complete failure, you know? So it's That's, sort of this big daring mission, you know, that everyone says, you got to go take this railroad out. 
I haven't thought about that way, but you have a very good point. And luckily, the man they chose for it was a very, someone who was definitely up to the task. Uh, and, and again, it's something almost like an action movie. Um, you know, the commander, Evan Potter, he had he was one of those guys that you and I probably worked with at one time or another in our lives. Someone who is very talented, very able, but doesn't get a chance to show, the, but gets limited opportunity to show what they're capable of. And so he... He was, uh, before the war, a lawyer in New York, had a little military training, had company Burnside on the 1862 um, North Carolina expedition. And they pretty much had just been, you know, a staff officer in Charleston. So he was appointed, you know, to lead the group. And then basically you can tell it was such a hastily put together group because it was a provisional division. Yet you have a brigadier general commanding it and you had and the two brigades are commanded by full bird colonels. And most of the pe- men that they hired, um, with maybe the exception of the 54 of Massachusetts, um, had very little actual field experience. Right. And could you actually talk a little bit more about the troops that many of them were uh, what they referred to as colored troops? You know, some people might say that, oh, it was supposed to be a political statement. But really, from what you're saying, what I read in the book is that, that really it is it was just it was just the circumstances. It was a matter of who do we have available right now? It, that's pretty much it. It was like, um, you know, okay, who is, who do we have available? The most experienced troops were in the first brigade, led by Colonel Philip P. Brown Jr., who commanded the 157th New York Volunteers. Again, he had no military experience, but he had seen action in Chancellorville and Gettysburg. And the rest of the brigade was the 56th New York, the 25th Ohio, and the 107th. Ohio. All three three infantry regiments had once been part of the 11th Army Corps, the Army of the the Potomac, and had seen some field actions, but in 1863, the Corps was sent to South Carolina and been siege operations around Charleston, you know, after that, which is a story in itself for another day. The second brigade, which was often called the Color Brigade, was commanded by Colonel Edward Niss Howell, who was a commander of the 54th, who came from a Quaker family, and again, no prior military experience before the war, but he'd been at Antietam and Fredericksburg, and um, he assumed command after Robert Shaw, or as I like to jokingly say, Ferris Bueller, um, was killed <laughs> <Yes>. in the <laughs> I, I, I yeah. know some people who have been glory, um, and when I look at it, I recognize all the places around Savannah, that's my birthplace, but Matthew Brock is a fine actor, but I think he was totally miscast in that role. Um, right, right, yeah. 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 <laughs> But anyway, Definitely not I, one of the regular type of movies he makes. No, it wasn't. Although Morgan Freeman and Denzel Washington, I thought were excellent in that film. That, but yeah, that's true. Charles, that's true. Yeah. Always over his head there. I mean, anyway, Howell had been wounded during the attack on Barry Wagner, and he had gone to Florida to recover, rejoined the Union, led at the Battle of Alsea, Florida, and then came back to Charleston where he took part in the siege of Port Fisher in Charleston. Um, this brigade included the 32nd Color Regiment, five companies of the 102nd U.S. Color Troops, four companies of the 1st New York Engineers, the 2nd Battalion of the 4th Cavalry, and Barry B. of the 3rd New York Artillery. So basically all infantry, very little cavalry, very little artillery. And of course, you know, so that's how they got together and all that. The, again, these are garrison troops. Um, some people argue, you know, that all uh, seeing black troops were 
insult to injury, but no, it was just the ones that they could find. That was it. That was all that was available. And of course, there's uh, always with two sides to a battle. Can you talk about uh, the Confederate forces that were opposing the federal forces? A lot of home guard units, soldiers that were picked up who were in hospitals, stuff like that, right? Um, what else? It, it was pretty much the old saying, you know, the proverbial old men and young boys. Uh, when um, Howard was in Columbia, the mayor told him that, you know, there was no more than less than 1,500 able-bodied men in the entire state that was currently not serving in the Confederate Army. Um, at the time Sherman came to South Carolina, there was probably about 20,000 men in Confederate uniform. Just about all of them had gone to North Carolina and tried to join up with Joe Johnson. Actually, kind of funny story when I was Ryan Carbon, as a little aside, when I was Ryan Carball, I was looking at the papers of Governor Andrew Gordon McGroff, who was also governor during Pirates Raid. And he had called for men to come to arms, and he got all kinds of letters from people giving him excuses not to. And my all time favorite was from the new author, William Gilmore Sims, who as part of his excuse, his age and 35 years of hemorrhoids. Oh, <laughs> well, that's a heck of an excuse right there. Yeah, that was actually in the document. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there's very little, uh, one to 2,000, and I'm being on the liberal side, how many were available. One interesting person was a colonel named Colcock, who um, actually was a part who repulsed the Union troops on the raid on Florence, and then later saw a little bit of action on Potter's Ray, as he's the only officer I can think of. Towards the end of the war, right towards the end of the raid, the only one significant Confederate officer came and took part of the thing, and that was um, Young, I'm trying to remember his first name, from Georgia, um, Pierce Young. But really, not a lot of names or what we would say all-stars, you know, you know, in terms of generals, you know, there are some generals who also named none of these people were. They basically, it was whoever they could grab. In the case of the first battle of the rage, you know, Dingle's Mill, which coincidentally took place on the same day Lee surrendered, they, you know, there was one soldier there who actually had to, who was manning the cannons, and he could only use one hand because his other hand had been shot off. So every artillery commander, and all of them were killed, by the way, at the battle, were basically, you know, had been taken from the hospital. And they had no munitions for the artillery. If you ever seen you know, the movie, the you know Pirates of the Caribbean, the Curse of the Black Pearl, where you see, you know, the forks and the silverware, you know, he the right, ship. right, very yeah. similar to that. It would have been very similar to that. So it was very easy for um, them to get by the Confederates. I mean, it was a token resistance, but probably no more annoying. Probably to them, was about as annoying as a mosquito would be to you and me. Wow, and. Could you, I mean, we're slowly getting into it, but could you just briefly describe uh, the federal advance, like you said? I mean, uh, they go to Manning, they fight at Dingle's Mill, they go to Sumter, Manchester. Could you just describe, you know, some of the places they went to? Well, the race started in Georgetown. Uh, when Sherman was still marching through South Carolina, the Union Navy captured Georgetown, South Carolina, um, which is just north of Charleston. Uh, and it was sort of like, you know, sort of a escape route for Sherman in case the march had gone sour, which it did not, of course. So they used that as their starting point for the raid. Anyway, they made, took plans for the um, raid. The expedition left Georgetown on the 5th of April, 1865. On the 8th, they entered Manning, South Carolina. And one kind of interesting contrast between 
there's two interesting contrasts between pirate raid and Sherman's march, which the one I'll talk about a little bit later. But the first one was when Sherman marched to South Carolina, it was wet and rainy. It rained, slid or snowed 28 of the first 45 days of 1865. When pirate marched in April and May, the weather had changed 180 degrees. Uh, it was hot, it was dry, and they actually had trouble finding water. Um, wow. So anyway, they occupied Maine. They did not go to Florence because the bridges to Florence had been destroyed, so they just went to went on to Manning. Then on the 9th, they had Dingle's Mill outside of Sumter, which the same day Lee surrendered to Grant. They stayed in Sumter till the 10th. Then on the 11th through the 15th, they went to a now abandoned town called Manchester. Uh, Manchester is a story I always like. It's a story in and of itself. It was basically, if you ever seen the movie Paint Your Dra- Paint Your Wagon in No Name City, right. Manchester a lot like that. A wild, wicked place, gambling, races, drinking. Uh, one preacher was chased out of town. Another was threatened with death. <laughs> Eventually, it was well, by the it, town has character. Let's say that. Yeah, it had a lot of character. <laughs> uh, uh, so anyway, so they stayed there a couple days to refresh, and also they were there for from the 11th to the 15th. And part of the reason why was. Um, they had, and this also happened to some Sherman too, and it's not talked about a lot, but a number of slaves left the plantation to follow the troops. Um, literally thousands of slaves. We don't know the exact number, five to 10,000 have been estimated. And these were dragging the soldiers, they slowed them down, they consumed supplies. So basically, they sent all the slaves by boat back to Georgetown to wait there. And, of course, the whole time, too, they were printing out newspapers saying, hey, you know, join the Union Army. We need you. And kind of ironically, while in Sumter, they actually printed a newspaper saying Lee surrender. And technically, it was the first newspaper to ever print news of surrender, even though it was actually a, a joke. So anyway, 15th, they get going. Of course, on the 14th, you know, Lincoln was shot for Sid and died the next morning. The 16th, they go to Spring Hill. And, of course, a couple of other places. Um. There's a town named Maysville, which they went to, which is a kind of interesting place to visit today because it's like going to an old West Coast town here in South Carolina. Um, they occupied Camden on the 17th, um, which is the same day General Joseph Johnson began peace talks with Federal Major General William T. Sherman at Durham. And, of course, keep in mind they're still looking for the railroads. The railroad people are still moving. Um, they did find some um, – outside Sumter a little bit and did destroy some, but not all. Then the 18th, you had the Battle of Boykin's Mill south of Camden. Uh, and Boykin Mill has an interesting story. Um, the last um, Union officer killed in action in the war died during that battle. His name was um, Lieutenant Edward L. Stevens. He was with the 54th Massachusetts. And the story goes that a Confederate officer saw him on his horse. And point to a young 15-year-old Confederate soldier and said, see that man on that horse? He said, yes, and you can get him. He said, yeah, I can. He did, and he killed him. And he was buried on the spot there, and now he's buried in Florence, South Carolina, at the National Cemetery there. Well, after the war, his fiance, um, Stephen's fiance, came to Camden and asked that someone could take her out to where her fiance was killed. And as it turned out, the guy was a man who shot him. That's, that's such an eerie story. That yeah, the person who killed her fiance is actually the one who met her and mm-hmm. showed her the exact spot he did the deed. Right. Um, yeah. 
But it's also interesting from what you were talking about is, one, the use of, uh, I guess you could say, psychological warfare or propaganda, producing these newspapers everywhere they went to uh, spread the union word, if you will. That's right. kind of interesting as well. But also, too, could you talk a little bit about the the African-American experience? They were on the trail following Union Army, but I was reading in your book some horror stories about children drowning, children being left behind. Oh, that's what some of the um, people claim. Again, there's no way we can verify. Of course, the worst case was at Ebenezer Creek outside Savannah, where um, Sherman's 14th Corps commander, um, General Jefferson C. Davis, had some slaves that were following him, you know, build a raft for his men or pontoon bridges stuff. And then as soon as they got telling them, oh, we'll let you cross it, we get across. And once they got across, he cut everything down and let the slaves fend for themselves. And there's, and it created such an outcry that um, Secretary of War and Stanton came to Savannah to talk to Sherman about this in person. So it's really hard to say. What really was bad for the um, slaves, and I'm kind of putting the cart before the horse. Is after you know being told all these weeks by Pars men, you know, go to Georgetown, we'll, we'll take care of you, you'll get, you know, you can join the army, get a uniform, so on and so on. Well, when the raid ends, they get back to Georgetown, they say, Oh, war's over, we don't need you now, go back to your plantations. Which I'm sure maybe wow. more than yeah. say, you know, what the <laughs> you know, whiskey tango foxtrot. <laughs> right. And one thing, too, is kind of interesting in the civilian comments, when you see them talk about the um, how their interaction with the troops. Now, one of the big differences that I was referring to between Potter and Sherman is I've never read a civilian account that spoke ill of Potter the man. Everyone said the whole same thing. He was polite, well-spoken, um, generous, intelligent, and that if he promised that your property would be spared, it was spared. Um, no one ever said, I've yet to see anyone say an ill word about him. And the white troops, some of them were kind of, you know, iffy about it, but again, the whole more positive. But when they talk about the um, African-American troops, oh, yeah, then, you, then the racism overflows. Right, right. That's interesting, too, that that's how these accounts record it. Uh, speaking on that about the destruction, I thought that was interesting about the two signs, right? Hearing about Potter actually providing uh, security for some yeah. of these plantation homes, but you know, I guess he posting a guard. Arrested yeah. some, some people for trying to burn down a house is promised protection. Now, I'm not saying everything was safe. There was some damage, but even in proportion to size, to Sherman's Ray, it's like night and day. Okay. I mean, you can, in fact, there are still two major plantation homes um, that are part of the raid. One you can see from the road. The other is now owned by a private trust, but they open it up once a month for tours. Um, They're still standing, and Potter stayed at both of them. So would you say that the majority of the destruction was towards military-type resources? Exactly. Robert Brown said, who— um, asked me to write this book, uh, basically, although ironically I was already two-thirds of the way done with it. I had started as a sequel to Carnival Destruction, and I put it aside to write about Marie Boozer, who was a Kim Kardashian of, of South Carolina during this period. She's an interesting story in her own right. Um, 
And anyway, he asked me to do something for the 150th anniversary of the raid, and I was too service done, so I was happy to do it. Got knocked out, but he was a retired military man. In fact, he and he said that and he was a past president of the South Carolina Division of the Sons of Confederate Veterans, and he said, you know, I don't there you know will to father. I said. Really? He said, yeah. He said, Pollard was given an order, He and he carried out the order, and then once he was done, he went back, you know, and returned to base. He said, just like any military man would have done. He said, just like I would have done. And, you know, you want to take a, a slight step further, I would say that you can look at Pollard's Ray as sort of a 19th century version of a surgical strike, you know, going after a specific target, and then, you know, getting out. And you're right. That's pretty much from what I was reading. That's what it was um he knew his target and he hunted that target up and down those those lines until he could find the resources that needed destroying essentially exactly that was it and as soon as it was done he started marching back to georgetown and then when he was at mayfield plantation um you know he got word that you know lee had surrendered to grant and he for some reason i don't know why he left his command and went not back to Georgetown, but went down to Beaufort to spread the word, which has always struck me as odd, but I've never able to find anything, you know, why he did. Um, Pollard, nor did his two top officers, wrote any history about the raid other than the official reports. In fact, Pollard died a bachelor in New York in a boarding house. So, you know, most of what we know about Pollard and his men and the raid actually come from the official reports and unfortunately they can be a little one side because most of them are you know from the union side very few first-hand confederate military accounts written at that time of course where were this in the reports too at that point but of course i know we did talk about uh the fighting almost being like the union potter dealing with the mosquito right. but there was some the, some hot fighting for the size of the engagement and there were was a Medal of Honor recipient, or at least well, yeah. two, right, throughout the entire raid. Could we talk uh, about the, that situation with the Medal of Honor recipient? Yeah, yeah. Dingle's Mill and um, Boykin's Mill were really the only two battles that were really we would call, you know, big battles. I mean, most of what was quote unquote battles were really little skirmishes. Um, the big one was Private Henry, and pro- probably going to mispronounce his name, but Finken Biner, F-I-N-K-E-N-B-I-N-E-R. Right. Um, he was roared the mill uh, for heroic, for Dingle's mill. His citation read, while on the advancing skirmish line within direct and close fire of the Emory's artillery, he crossed the mill race on a burning bridge and ascertained the enemy's position. But there was another one, too. A Lieutenant Charles L. Beryl was honored post-war in 1891. Actually, both these citations came post-war. Um, Barrels came in 1891 for hazardous service and marching through Emmy's country to bring relief to his command and attempt to establish communication between Potter and a relief force. And Finkel Bars came in 1898. During the war, Medal of Honors were handed almost out like candy at times, and but these were two that were definitely well earned. And of course, uh, could you talk a little bit detail? What exactly happened at Dingle's Mill? That was the first major bloodletting of the rain, well, right? Well, right. By the way, um, if anyone reads the book, you'll see Mill often after a battle. There were I asked someone one time, and they said there was 200 mills in Sumter County 
during the war. And for mm. those who are not familiar with what kind of mills, we're not talking about textile mills or manufacturing mills. We're talking about, you know, grain mills. Um, this is where people would take their corn, um, grind it into cornmeal or grits or wheat into flour and so on and so on. Um, but Dingle's Mill was the first one. Now, there were some early warnings that they were coming. They gathered whatever they could, all what loose militiamen they could have, people from the hospital, and they formed, tried to form a best they could defensive position that would force the Union troops to, you know, go around the mill and make in the thought they'd be vulnerable. On paper, a good plan. The problem is they didn't have the artillery or the numbers, and basically, um, Potter was able to quickly flank them. Um, Boykin Mill, they actually had a pretty clever idea. They opened up the mill floodgates to flood the road to slope down the Raiders, but um, they were able to, again, superior numbers, they were able to go back up, close the mill, you know, floodgate, and, you know, move on forward. So, you know, they were battles, right. big, big battles. But as I tell people all the time about this, right, you got to keep in mind, yeah, you know, they're not Gaysburg. We're not talking Atlanta. We're not talking Antietam. But, you know, the danger these men faced were still pretty much real. I mean, these men were marching on very narrow roads, probably no more than 10 feet across or 10 yards at the most. And, you know, it's heavily with the area. I mean, they were, you know, they were right for the picking, you know, for snipers and sharpshooters and everything. So the danger these men faced was just as real as it would be in one of the more famous battles or campaigns. Right. And I do think that when you look at the Confederate side as well, just like you mentioned, even though they were a much smaller force, um, they were not as properly equipped to fight off Potter. They did have the terrain working in their favor. They knew the terrain. They knew how to use it. And they were using the floodgates, you know, the stories of the Union soldiers wading through waist deep water trying to get to these guys. Yeah, that was Boykin's mill. Yeah, it was good. They had some pretty decent strategy, all things considered. But again, you know, it was a matter of manpower and materials, and they were lacking, severely lacking in both. I mean, it would be like you and me trying to, you know, trying to play a football game against an NFL team, basically. Right. Um. But of course, it wasn't just the, the soldiers that were affected by this raid. There is the civilian perspective. And... I understand that there were some civilians who even told the Confederate resistance not even to put up a fight because they were afraid that resistance would only infuriate the raiders who would inevitably win and it would cause more damage to the, the towns. Uh, can you talk about that? That really only happened in Sumter. Sumter okay. was untouched by the war at that point. And a lot of the women and a lot of the women folks actually, you know, made that comment. They wrote it after the war. Now a lot of these accounts are post for so how many of them actually said at the time or just came to a conclusion later, you know, we can argue all day about that. But that was the only time. Now, Camden, which was the only other really major city, um, town that was occupied, well, it had been hit by Sherman a couple of months earlier, so there really wasn't much there to worry about. And Potter and his men walked into what was left of it unoccupied, you know, unopposed, I mean. So yeah, that was really the only time that you saw that happen was in Sumter. Most of okay, yeah, most of the other time the women were because everything was so spread out and sparsely populated. It's like I tell people, you could put the all the the entire population of all the counties that Potter's raid went through 
into the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, and you would have tens of thousands of seats left over. Right. And one of my favorite stories reading through your book was, of course, there's a, I don't know if it was a story. I guess we can't really uh, validate it. But the story of one civilian woman woman using shears to scare off federal soldiers. There, I read a couple of, you know, when I actually believe it's quite plausible. And the reason why I okay. say that is I read similar stories or came across similar stories when researching Sherman's march through, um, you know, South Carolina. You got to remember, a lot of these soldiers, Union soldiers, uh, were not particularly well educated. Um or in many soldiers, well, at least in Sherman's case, you know, had a lot of European soldiers who brought with them European superstitions and traditions. So I can see that happening. I can see that, you know, something like that could scare them. And of course, keep in mind, you know, their nerves are on edge, they're all jittery. You know, it could have been just, you know, it could have been just something that just tipped them over and said, I'm not going to worry about it. Plus, you know, again, it's the late stage of the war. I mean, do you really want to risk, you know, getting killed over something like this at this point? I wouldn't. Right, exactly. And uh, I mean, just for my listeners who might not know the exact story, I'm just looking at it in the book now. So essentially, she was in her flower garden carrying a pair of shears when she sighted some soldiers. Instead of running, she stood on her porch and defiantly told the soldiers, I'll shoot the first man that puts his foot on that step. She then okay. clicked her shears, which she was holding behind her back, for added effect. Her bluff worked, and the would-be looters fled. <laughs> yeah, that I think. Yeah, that one I can feel is probably quite true. I was thinking of another story um, where some people try to act it like they were a ghost or doing some sort of mystic inc- incantation. That might have been a Sherman story, where that just spooked the soldiers and they ran. Oh wow! Yeah, right. Um, yeah. yeah, what? Thing too, I don't recall having this potter's rate, but I know it happened quite common. Is a lot of women uh, would display their husbands or their brothers or their fathers' Masonic aprons out the window, and that often helped bring them a little bit of protection. Right, because there were Masons on uh, both sides. Exactly. Of course. So we're coming towards, I think, the the end of the raid here. So I w- would say right right here from reading in the book, uh, Potter reported. The the troops uh, fought uh, remarkably well. The results of the expedition may be summed up as followed. Captured three guns, one battle flag, 50 prisoners, 300 horses and mules, destroyed 32 locomotives, 250 cars, large quantities of government stores, all the railway stations, freight houses, and machine shops between Camden and Maysville, large large portions of the railway between those points, and 2,500 bales of cotton. The number of, he says, Negroes who followed the column may be estimated at 5,000. You know, from that summary, it seems that the raid was pretty successful. Uh, what would you say? Yeah, well, actually, he also wrote another report on which he inflated the um, bales of cotton in 5,000. Um, I tell you, the funny part of the report is they list one missing, and one soldier wrote, that the that the missing soldier was someone from his regiment who had gone AWOL. And the soldier wrote, he was a homely man who I guess wanted to be with more with more homely me- other homely people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair enough, crazy. fair enough. <laughs> yeah, that was successful. Um Potter and his 
two colonels all, all received direct promotions. And pretty much after that, they all fed from history. In fact, when I was writing the book and trying to find what happened to them after the war, the only source I could find was their obituaries. So so you'd that, say that the raid was successful for the Federals. What about the Confederate forces? How did they view this? Well, don't really find a lot of people. I mean, they were upset, angry about it. They you know, weren't happy about it. One interesting little point is a couple of Union soldiers questioned the need for the raid and, you know, saying, you know, why did we do this? It really wasn't necessary. And right. The interesting side note along those lines is that Sherman, in his memoirs, makes absolutely no mention of the raid. And no this was his brainchild. <laughs> it was his brainchild. And, you know, if you look at his memoirs, one of the big criticism of it is that he stuffed it full of reports. Of course, to be fair, the OR had not official records of the War Rebellion not been published then. And again, none of the um, documents he has in the reprint in his memoirs mentions a raid, which tells me Sherman himself probably realized, yeah, or maybe said not that big a deal or probably really didn't need it. But yeah, I kind of, you know, it's, you know, was, the raid was successful. Why did you not talk about it unless you were embarrassed about it or felt like, you know, man, maybe I made a mistake. Right. I mean, like you said, the first the very first bloodletting, Lee had already surrendered to Grant, or they were, you know, same day. And, uh, of course, uh, Sherman was, was accepting surrenders over there in North Carolina. Right. Ra the raid really was coming towards the close. It is kind of interesting to note, though, mm -hmm. that, you know, people think that with our 21st century thinking that when word gets out, you know, the surrender, it's done. The war's over. It wasn't like they could just tweet out that, hey, the war's over, everyone go back home. It does take time to send that message to everybody, and fighting still continued, um, whether they were eager to fight or whether the message just didn't get to them in time. Well, folks, too, you got to look at the infrastructure in, in South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia. I mean, you could not have sent a telegram from, you know, Appomattox to South Carolina saying, hey, the war's over. You know, it had to be sent by courier or by boat. Right. And right. I mean, not by train either because all the railroads had been destroyed. So, so that's what. So yeah, it, it took a while for the message to filter. But you know, still, even with that hindsight, I mean, you look at the fact Sherman had come through South Carolina, pretty much wrecked the whole state. He knew there was no troops left in South Carolina. You know why? The railroads were not going to do Lee any good because, you know, the, the trains in North Carolina were now wrecked, and he Sherman wrecked the the. Charlotte Railroad Line, which connected Columbia to Charlotte and then from there on to Virginia, it had been destroyed by Sherman. So there really, to me, no practical need for the raid other than just satisfying an itch and annoyance on you. Right. And would you say because of that, I mean, this is the Untold Civil War podcast. We like to talk about untold stories. Do you think that's why this raid does fall into the realm of the untold slash forgotten? I think that's part of it. I think the other reason, dude, like I said, sparse population and timing is everything. It's like I told somebody, I said, you know, there was no reporters that accompanied the raid, no artists, no illustrators. The oldest known picture we have of any of the battle sites, not counting Mil Milford Plantation, is a picture of Dingle's Mill that was made about the turn of the last century. So that was so that's it too a lot of it. But you know, even if you had some people in bed, as we would say today, with the Raiders, um, it would have been best a page three or a last page story because 
the big stories at the time was Lee's surrender and Lincoln's assassination. So it would have right. been all pushed aside. But also, too, is um, I was the first person to write a narrative account of the battle. Someone did my, sort of a scrapbook, cut-and-paste type book back in the 1990s, which had some good information but no real context or anything, or no narrative flow. Although it's not a bad book, it's also had a lot of superfluous information um, that would be of interest only to someone who's interested in Sumter County genealogy. So that's one right. of the reasons. Of my four books, Potter Ray has been my most successful. And I think the reason being is as I walked and talked around South Carolina about the Ray, I found that a lot of people have heard about the Ray, know of the Ray, um, but don't know anything really about it. So I think that's that's a lot of it right there. I mean, people heard of it, but like I put in the introduction to the book, Walter Edgar in the History of South Carolina, he only devotes one paragraph to it. I read a biography of General Young, no mention of the Ray. It's like history almost completely forgot it. But it's definitely not forgotten uh, with your book. It's it's a great book, and it's a real easy, quick read. So I definitely recommend it to my listeners if they haven't picked it up already. And it's available from the History Press or Arcade Publishing. Uh, you can buy either on Amazon or directly from the publisher. I have my own Amazon page, and you get my other four books there, Columbia Civil War Landmarks, which is self-explanatory. Um, the Scandalous Lives of the Caroline Bells, Marie Boozer, and... Her mother, Amelia Feaster. Uh, Amelia is an interesting story. But by the time she was, before her 35th birthday, she had been married and widowed three times. Husband number one died the day at their wedding. Husband number two was allegedly murdered. Husband number three shot the left side of his head off with a double barrel shotgun. Well, this is not a very good record. <laughs> <laughs> no, she was definitely, yeah, she she was a very, as I said, they were the Kim Kardashian and Kris Jenner of that era. And Marie was a tabloid queen throughout much of the late 18th, early 19th century. And in fact, two romance novels were written about her in the 1950s. So it, it's a, and it's also the only Civil War book that mentions Krakatoa. Because Marie was only out of Java the day Krakatoa exploded, and she actually wrote an account of what it was like, which I put in the book. So wow. Well, then and, I'm I'm definitely gonna tell my listeners. Uh, I'll leave a link to you your page in the uh, show notes so that people can go on there. Uh, they can get your book, Potter's Raid, or uh, any of the other books you've written. You know, I do power for anybody that lives in the Carolinas or or close to the Carolinas. I do PowerPoint presentations related to my books and the topics. Um, you know, so that's it. That's it. <clears throat> but yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, as I said, I, I, you say the untold civil war. That's something that... Um, I, I kind of sort of have found myself in sort of being something of a sort of a niche writer, finding all these odd, unique, and bizarre little stories and bringing them out to the 21st century, screaming and kicking all the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, those are the best stories. They're the best stories yeah. to tell. And I think uh, th oftentimes those are the best stories to tell because they get people interested in the history. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, like for Carnival, I went through – I've got about five, six hundred sources listed in my bibliography. And I mean, and you read some of these stories. I mean, there's one story I loved in Marlboro County where some um, bummers came up to a little girl on a fence and they asked her, um, where's your where's your father? And she said, 
My father's with Lee killing the Yankees while my grandfather's in the swamp hiding the cows. As far as you can imagine where the boomers are mainly went to. <laughs> well, so, yeah, you, you know, I honest I have to give it that she was honest, so Yeah. <laughs> Best so, policy. Yeah, you, yeah, you come across some of the great stories. Another one I also kind of love, again, from Carnival, is um, when Sherman was trying, aboard, trying to get out of Savannah, he sent a scout to an island in the middle of Savannah River, and he climbed a tree and almost got shot by a sniper. Well, after the war, he was in St. Louis telling the story, and a guy came forward to him and said, um, I'm the guy who shot at you. And, wow. and he said, I'm glad he, I'm glad I missed you. And, and the other guy said, I'm glad you missed me, too. And they both had a laugh. <laughs> you know, it, it's it is. And, and and that story with the story of the the sniper soldier who showed the fiance where her officer, her fiance fell. Um You know, it, you got all these little stories, these little anecdotes, these human interest stories that really moving they put a smile to your face they can make you cry this is what storytelling history is all about you know and that's the thing i mean you know you know to me history is a series of story it's not you know fact da da fact da da you know and you know there's some people who like to put you know lee here in the south in particular you know there are people who will worship the ground that lee and Jackson walked on, but they were men. They were like you and me. They, they had their faults, their, their fallacies, and they made mistakes. And you know, I mean, and I think it's important we tell all the whole story, everything. You know, show them as human beings, warts and all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And when you you share that, I feel like people are are able to connect to it more. Because right. they can see themselves in some of these uh, big characters as well. So it, it really brings it home. I think one of the cool things that I saw recently, too, where people are going to locations where Civil War photographs are taken and trying to retake the photos in the exact same spot. Um, right. I think that like stuff like that, too, is, is really cool to kind of reiterate how we are very much connected, the sites where these people stood, these great people, these big characters, Grant Lee. Um, we can see what they saw if we go to those locations. Speaking of that, are there locations available for people to come visit in regards to Potter's Raid? Yeah, like I said, the Sumter County Historical um, Site has put out an excellent brochure um, that shows the sites from Manny and Sumter and Kershaw counties. They've got marked out there are historic markers in most of the sites. Um, really about the only things that really survived is the Battle of, is Battle of Dingle's Mill. It has been set aside and preserved as a park. Um, Battle Boykin's Mill uh, is sort of a recreation of a 19th century village. The original mill is gone, but there's a mill, sort of 19th century mill built on the exact site. Plus, the, there's a monument to the battle there. So you can still get a pretty good lay of the land of what it was like. Um, they, if you look at the history of the 54th Mass that was written, you know, after the war, um, they have a really good map of Dingle's Mill, of uh, um, Boykin's Mill, um, that is well, which I included in my book, which is well helps too. You're going to do that, and then um, the two plantation homes, they're still there. One is it, there, one's a private residence, but you can see it through the home, and there's a little place where you can park and take a picture. And um, Medfield, like I said, 
a historic group or an arts group owns it and they open it up once a month to the public and, and it's very you know impressive but most of the other sites unfortunately are have gone down on Maysville the deep you can see where the depot was and like I said it's kind of an eerie place it's like going it was a very successful town until the 1920s when the roads were built around it and then it just went then followed by the depression and then it's literally parts of it is literally crumbling in the ground it's like going to a ghost town yeah. um well that, that is pretty cool that that stuff is still there just on a side note um you always learn things after the books come out that's one of the curse of being a writer right um, <laughs> the um trains that they were found that ended the reg are were still around as late as the 1930s or the remains of the work um oh, wow. in a, a state forest in sumter county uh, a lot of that material was pulled out during the war for the scrap metal drives, but late as a late 1970s, 1980s, there was still you could still see some of the tracks and the materials and stuff. The problem is the site is now a bombing range for Shaw Air Force Base. Oh, so wow. yeah, there's so the U.S. government is still trying to make sure it's destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, if you want to go relic hunting there, be my guest, but don't come to me for bail money or hospital bills if you survive. <laughs> oh man, that that is that's interesting. That's funny actually. That's crazy. Um wow. Well, you know, on that no, that's a great note to uh end off here. Um we're reaching about that time. But uh, thank you so much for, for coming on this podcast. It's really been great talk, talking about the Civil War. I always love a great excuse to talk about the Civil War uh, and untold stories. Um, and it's great to talk about it, especially now that, you know, you know, what else can we do with everything being closed and canceled, right? So. Yeah, I've been working on a PowerPoint presentation that I was supposed to do a couple in a couple of months and now it's probably going to be put off till next year but i figure well i got time let's go ahead and get that knocked out right there you go um but uh thank you again for uh coming on the podcast uh you know maybe we can do it again and talk about one of your other books <laughs> marie boozer we, we need to talk about marie boozer it, it, it oh is there one, you go yeah. it is one of the stories that um is so incredible you won't believe it's true <laughs> Well, absolutely, absolutely. Once I uh, pick up my own copy and, and read through it, I'll definitely be uh, messaging you back to get, to get the interview done. Okay. All, All right. right. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, be safe and uh, stay in touch. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Untold Civil War Podcast. I hope I kept you entertained while you cooked dinner, cleaned your musket, tended to the pack mules, or whenever you listen to podcasts. I'd like to thank Craig Duncan for allowing me to use his music on my podcast, and I'd like to also encourage all of you to like me on Facebook and follow me on Instagram. That way you won't miss a bit of Untold Civil War. So bye for now, and tune in next time for our next episode. Thank you.